Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. We have a very thrilling episode today. I'm Kennedy Cooper. I'm Brandon Buchanan. Leia Rose. And our guest here is Jason Call, who is running for Congress in Washington, too, if that's correct. That is correct. Yep. Welcome to the show, Jason. I appreciate you guys uh, hosting me very much. Thank you. Jason Call is a socialist, an anti-fascist, and an award-winning mead brewer, we discovered. <laughs> oh, you guys You guys did some digging. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we like to do our homework. Now I'm scared. <laughs> uh. can, can you tell us about the mead game? Because I think of that as like something that's made up, like a made-up beverage from Game of Thrones. <laughs> well, okay, so I will tell you that mead has been determined as the oldest alcoholic beverage that uh, humans have used, made, and uh, basically it's fermented honey, and what used to happen in the old days is that the bees would make their nests and the, the honey would be in a hollow of an old tree and water would get in there and wild yeast would get in there, and uh, humans figured out that what came out of that fermenting tasted really good and um Felt really good too. There you so go. Uh, <laughs> that's really basic. That's really all meat is is fermented honey. There's a lot of other different things you could do with it, uh, just like you would do with beer. Different different styles and things you can put in it. But yeah, um, I've been making mead and beer for the last decade. And in 2016, I, I enter my stuff in competition fairly frequently. And so in 2016, my Key Lime Mead ended up winning the American Homebrewers Association uh, National Gold Medal for Fruit Mead. So I was pretty excited about that. Yeah, that, that is exciting. <laughs> How much competition was there? Oh, there's a, there's a lot. There have been people who have been doing this for a long, long, long time. But uh, here in Washington State, I was taught by a couple of the best mead makers on the planet, in my opinion. Uh, my uh, friend Mark, who is just about to open up his own commercial meadery uh, here in the region, he taught me all the ins and outs of, of how to do it. And then uh, my other friend, Tim, makes all sorts of experimental meads. And he told me after I won my gold medal, he said, you're not getting any more advice from me until I win one. <laughs> <So. laughs> oh, yeah, Got to keep some secrets uh, in his yeah. pocket now. <laughs> right. Well, obviously, we didn't bring you here to talk about mead. We brought you here to talk about something else we hope you might win and unseat some people who have maybe been doing it for a long time but maybe don't know all the best techniques, let's say. <laughs> right, right. And of course, I'm talking about your run for Congress. Hopefully, we can, we can bring some mead to D.C. <laughs> that would, that would be fantastic. That's the, yes, that's, uh, I believe that's your first, first and foremost campaign promise. No, wait. Um, <laughs> but um, you are looking to unseat a uh, incumbent Democrat, uh, as a number of progressives have been doing recently or are attempting to do in 2020. Yep. And particularly a Democrat who has been slow on what you would say and what a lot of people would say and what we would say are some crucial issues. So let's talk about your political background and how you got to be here running today. Well, I have been um, an activist. I've been an, an anti-war activist since, uh, I should tell you, I'm, I'm 48 years old. I went to the University of Washington for my undergrad, actually my undergrad and my master's. And when I was a freshman, sophomore-ish uh, back in 1990, uh, we 
uh, invaded Iraq the first time, and that was following Saddam Hussein drilling into Kuwait's oil, and it was, you mm-hmm. know, the, the history of that was, again, as we see with wars over and over again, is trumped-up charges, uh, really false reasons for going to war. And so I got involved in the anti-war movement when I was 18, 19 years old, protesting the first Iraq war. And I've done other progressive actions between then and now. I've marched for Palestinian rights. I've, of course, marched against the Iraq war in 2003. And that's really where I got my sort of sense of activism from was the anti-war movement that I've been involved in for, you know, almost 30 years now. And I have worked as a volunteer for political campaigns. I, I will tell everybody I did not, I have not ever voted for a Republican or a Libertarian, but I have voted to the left of the Democratic Party. I did vote for Ralph Nader in 96 and 2000. We're no stranger to that. We've had some greens on. Yeah. <laughs> Being fairly disgusted with the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton, I didn't feel like I could vote for him, and I didn't feel like I could vote for Al Gore. But seeing what Bush did in invading, um, well, you know, all the things that went along with um, 9-11 and then the follow-up to uh, leading up to the Iraq War, Mm -hmm. I did get back into Democratic politics and tried to help get John Kerry elected. And, you know, I, I worked for Howard Dean during the 2003 election cycle. I worked for Dennis Kucinich uh, in the 2008 election cycle. And this is volunteer work. But I really did not get inspired to sort of what I call take over the Democratic Party as as a as a leftist uh, until Bernie Sanders announced his run in 2015. So here in Washington, a number of us uh, we're very much drop everything and let's see what we can do to get Bernie Sanders this nomination. And not only that, make sure that he has the local and state party structure to be behind him as president. So it wasn't just about getting Bernie elected. It was about making sure he had the governmental support when he was in office. Right. Movement building. Uh, exactly. Uh, movement building. And so I got involved in my local Democratic Party. I got a lot of Bernie people to sign up for this local grassroots office called the PCO, Precinct Committee Officer, which is, um, I, I, I think it's structured differently state by state, but we call our grassroots precinct officers PCOs, and those are the lowest ranking elected official in the Democratic Party. Well, I did the work to triple the number of PCOs in my local legislative district, and we got a lot of Bernie people in at the county level, and we had the numbers to elect local party leadership and a really important position called the state, a state committee member. So you guys are probably aware of the state central committee that the Democratic Party has for every state. Well, I ended up getting myself elected to represent my county uh, on the state central committee. So it was, uh, it's pretty exciting. I, I'm very active in the left-wing sort of burner community at the state party. Um, We've got a lot of good progressives who got themselves elected statewide, but still not enough. I mean, we still very much have establishment centrists. um, I shouldn't even call them centrists, really right-wingers, right-wing Democrats running the show at the state level. So we're still having that fight. Which is interesting because I think a lot of people, like I'm in the South, I think of Washington on a state level as being really progressive. But I think the more that you dig into it, like it's not as progressive as you might think just because like they tend to pull the lever for Democrats on a national level. I can say this coming from Seattle in the recent city council elections, there's definitely a big divide between sort of the 
like Jason said, right-wing Democrats, the businessy Democrats, the Amazon Democrats, whatever you want to call them, and the real actual progressives like uh, Shama Sawan, Sean Scott, or the other kind of candidates for Seattle City Council. It's definitely a big sort of dividing line in Washington politics. Absolutely. And and really, this goes to the heart of why I chose to run for Congress. And just so you know, um, I was down at Shama's victory party. And oh, it, nice. that was really, really a fantastic turn of events to have those late ballots come in and her mm. end up winning that and showing that Amazon that they can't buy elections. Yeah, for, for context for the viewer... If you didn't know, uh, Shama Sawant in first balloting, which was uh, mail-in ballots that were counted first, uh, results from the first night, she was losing to her Amazon-backed opponent. But as later returns came in, and those returns are mainly ballots that were cast the day of, and those typically swung left, uh, the lead got slimmer and slimmer until like one of the last days of uh, returns coming in. Shama ended up winning like 53-47 or something like that. Yeah, she she took over 60% of those late return ballots, and that put mm -hmm. her over the edge. And so we were really thrilled about that. But to what we're saying here about the perception of Washington state as being a progressive state, mm -hmm. yes, on the grassroots level it is. But Washington has 10 congressional districts. Seven of those are held by Democrats, and only one of those is a progressive. Uh, that's Pramila Jayapal, who represents the Seattle area, Congressional District 7. And obviously, she has sponsored the House bill for Medicare for All, which is something that I support. But not a single one of the other six have committed to Medicare for All. And the guy I'm running against, Rick Larson, he's been here for 20 years. He does not support the Green New Deal. Uh, as you probably know, Boeing is one of our uh, major industries in this area. And we have naval bases here um, in my district. We have two naval bases. And he is showing out for Boeing, the transportation industry, the military industrial complex, the fossil fuel industry, the insurance industry. He takes more lobbyist money than any other member of Congress in Washington state, even the Republicans. He takes more lobbyist money than the Republicans. What a peach. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's a very conservative Democrat. And on top of that, he has a verifiably terrible track record in Congress. He's rated one of the bottom 20% for getting bills passed in his entire uh, almost 20 years here. He's running for his 10th term. For, in his almost 20 years here, he's only gotten six bills passed that he has been primary sponsor of. So he's not a very effective member of Congress. Uh, many of us think that's by design. He's really just here to vote along with the industry, not necessarily to be forwarding legislation, but basically to be doing what he's told. I want to talk a little bit about Rick Larson. The Republican that ran against him, Mark Henneman, last time out, asked him at a town hall whether he agreed with Obama's foreign policy. Kind of a broad question. Larson said yes, and the guy said, okay, I've got to run against him. Was there a moment for you personally, uh, something that Rick Larson said or did that you said, OK, we've got to primary this guy and get him out of out of Congress? Absolutely. In fact, that was back in 2005. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been a constituent of Rick's for his entire tenure. I moved into this. Now, I'm a I'm a native Washingtonian. I've lived in Washington state mostly since 1983, and I've lived in his district 
since he was elected, since a couple of years before he was elected. So he has been my congressman for his entire tenure. And back in 2005, he voted for the Bankruptcy Reform Act. And if you know the Bankruptcy Reform Act, it allowed banks, or it prevented, I should say, it tightened the regulations on, on how bankruptcy could be filed and basically made it impossible for anyone carrying student debt to shed that student debt through bankruptcy. And one of the things that people need to know about Rick is he does not like to be challenged. I think a lot of politicians have learned to kind of put on a smile, and if they're being challenged, they'll make that smile, and they'll kind of nod, and they won't be you know, combative or offensive, but Rick Larson is not one of those people. And so if he gets challenged on things that, that he doesn't agree with you on, he'll basically tell you, I don't have to talk about that, which is basically what he did with me back in 2005 when I challenged him at one of his town halls, asking him why he signed on, because the bankruptcy reform law was Republican-sponsored. Uh, I think the Republicans voted for it 100%, and Democrats voted against it, I want to say, around 60 to 80%. So he was one of the minority of Democrats who voted for that bankruptcy act. And so when I asked him, why did you vote for this? He said, this is in public. Uh, basically, I know more about this than you do, and I'm not going to talk about it anymore. And this is really the way he responds to his constituents mm-hmm. in general when he gets challenged. He came to our legislative district asking for an early endorsement in 2016, and this is really when the Bernie people had kind of made their presence known. And we asked him what his uh, position was on TPP. And he told us he did not have to respond to that because TPP was not current legislation on, on the congressional floor. And we said, well, you, yes, you do have to. And he said, no, we don't. And we did not give him our endorsement. But that's the way Rick Larson handles being challenged. And, you know, he's, he's not particularly well-liked here in the district because he won't engage in a respectful way with his constituents. Kind of going back a little bit to that time period, did you leave the country after Bush got reelected? I I did. God, you guys are good. You guys really did your digging. We try, we try. (laughs) I did. I was a public high school math teacher for 18 years. I've been out of the ed business for a couple of years now. But yeah, I taught high school math. And like I said, I was very much anti-war, took part in the anti-war movement, the protests and the marches. And I was so frustrated that, you know, when I say I worked for Kerry, I really wanted Kerry to get elected because I could not stand George Bush. Was it, a blow, was it a blow for you when Kerry lost, or did you feel like he was not the guy, like deep down? I, I did not think he was a great candidate. I, I did not think he had a great shot of winning because I know how it is when you're, you know, a war president yeah. uh, historically is going to get reelected. So I don't know that my hopes were too terribly high on that. But when Bush did get reelected, I sold my house. I sold all of my things. I said, I, I got to get out of this country for a little while. And so my wife, who is now my ex-wife, and my kids, we sold our house. We sold all of our things. I took my kids overseas, and we ended up being in Cairo, Egypt for a while. And I was teaching high school math over there to Egyptian kids and a lot of other Arabic, Middle Eastern kids, but they all spoke English fluently. That was, it was a, it was a private school. So yeah, I did I I did time out of the country just because I had to get away from America at that point. I could not really honestly believe that we had reelected somebody who was 
I mean, Bush is just a fool. I mean, it's I, – I say right now in 2016 uh, or since 2016, I, I've said don't normalize Bush as bad as yes. Trump is. Don't normalize Bush because that Bush presidency was not normal. Mm -hmm. Yes, we actually we actually have a whole episode about this. I can't remember which what the uh, the number is, but it's something that we're very concerned about, and it's really refreshing to have someone on the show who's talking about it this way because I think a lot of people act like Trump is this aberration or something, and I think that if you feel that way, you just don't remember the Bush presidency clearly. <laughs> Yeah, like you're, you know, casting everything wrong with politics, systemic, everything systemically wrong with politics into just this one man that we can get rid of and then everything will go back to normal. Shit with Joe Biden talking about how we need the we need the Republican Party and um, people should stay Republican. It's just it's just it's just incredible. You know, I actually talked about this. I've, I've been going around to local party organizations, you know, stumping for my campaign. And I, the, at the very last meeting I was at a couple of days ago, I told them, if we don't get a progressive Congress, you know, regardless of who is elected, if, if Trump gets pushed out of office and we get a, a Democrat in office, regardless of who that is, if we don't change the face of Congress and get a progressive congress that is actually going to do something for mm -hmm. the american people we definitely risk the pendulum swinging back the other way and ending up just like trump was worse than bush we could end up easily with somebody that's worse than trump in 2024 and these democrats with blinders on don't seem to have a historical perspective on that or have any understanding of what the grassroots movement is about and what the grassroots movement wants out of their government. Okay, listen. So you you did time uh, in the Middle East, living abroad. I did. Did that color your views on on foreign policy at all? Well, I'll tell you what it did. What living in Egypt did for me was give me a perspective on a lot of the really good things that we have here in America. I was told when I went over there, don't criticize the government. Don't criticize Islam as a religion. That was difficult for me, and not not in a, I don't want to say in an Islamophobia sense, but in living in a different culture where the reality is women are treated like second-class citizens there. They are not allowed to pray on Friday with the men. Uh, they walk, you know, five steps behind the men. You know, you have to absorb that kind of thing and say, this is, this is not our culture. This is the way they do things over here. And it did give me an appreciation of human rights here in America. The freedoms that we do have with our democratic government. But what it also did when I came back from Egypt, and, and I'll tell you another thing about that, and the reason I came back after about six months was my son was about a year old, and he was sick constantly. Now, I had access to a, to a decent doctor over there, and she told me, uh, she was a French doctor, and she said, you've got to take him out of here. He was getting sick with respiratory illnesses, with intestinal illnesses, mm. and Christ. part of that is because there are no environmental standards in Egypt. Cars on the freeway were just belching black smoke constantly. And, you know, I, I had a, a membership, a gym membership uh, at a hotel. And so we would go to the pool on top of the hotel, like 30 stories up. And we're about four miles away from the pyramids. And on a clear day, 
the pyramids dominate the skyline. But when you had a smoggy day, you literally could not see the pyramids, and they're only four miles away. And that's how bad the pollution was in Cairo. I'd been there maybe three weeks, and my throat felt like I was a -a pack-a-day smoker. And so this is what other people in the world have to live with that we thankfully do not have to live with. But to add on to that, when I came back from Cairo, that experience made me want to fight even harder to maintain what we have, to advance what we have in terms of democratic institutions, but also to make sure that we were helping other places around the world establish democratic institutions also, because Cairo was just like living in a big ashtray. It really was. And I'm sure when you say establish democratic institutions, you don't mean let's put 10,000 boots on the ground and rough some people up, right? No, 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 no. Absolutely not. I, I am absolutely not talking about forcing. It's, it's this idea of that, that Reagan, I think Reagan said back in the early 80s that America is the shining beacon on the hill. Well, you know what? We could be, but we're not. I mean, it's been it's been articulated since the Mayflower Declaration. Like, it's it's a really old idea. But the reality is, um, we do have better environmental standards here. We do have better democratic standards here, and we do have more freedom here than a lot of places have around the world. But we should be modeling that and showing other countries how we treat our citizens positively, how our citizens uh, have access to our government and have a voice in our government. And, you know, the, the whole Arab Spring uprising that started in Tunisia in 2009, that was people who wanted those ideals. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that there is the impetus for democracy around the world that does get quashed by authoritarian governments. Mm-hmm. But also, we got to fix a ton of stuff here at home. When we have our government suppressing votes, when we have um, corporations, I just saw the movie Dark Water last night, when we have corporations poisoning our water and getting away with it with no retribution, with no rebuke, well, eventually they did get sued and have to pay the fines. But when we have so many things going wrong with our own country, we really have no business telling other people how they should run their countries. Yeah, I think that's very well put. So I'm curious, so you come back and Bush finishes his presidency, and then we have the Obama presidency. How did you feel about the Obama presidency overall? Did you kind of feel like there was a lot of hope in that for you, or was it somewhat of a letdown? Well, I was ecstatic when Obama got elected, one, to see the tail end of Bush and Cheney. I mean, Cheney, what an evil bastard. Uh, but I don't think you're going to get much disagreement on that. <laughs> no argument. So I was elated when Obama, I, I, I literally cried when Obama got elected because he had sold me on that hope, on that change. And I did have people telling me, well, watch out. I mean, I don't think he's going to give us. I think, you know, you be careful about what he says because I don't think he's going to bring what you think he's going to bring. And I have to tell you, when when they had the um, ACA fights in 2009, and I guess when Obama took single payer off the table when they were doing the health care negotiations around that time, that's when I knew I'd been snookered. So it did not take me very long into the Obama administration to realize that hope and change was a lie, that 
you know, we had so many Democrats around here saying how much better it was, and I was one of the ones who was saying, yeah, but, you know, this is, this is not what his presidency sold itself to be. And so I'm a huge critic of the Obama administration. I'm certainly tired of his voice right now telling activists and telling the progressive movement that, you know, we need to sit down and shut up. I think he, he represents an era of politics that I hope we can bury and never hear from again. I think that's very well put. <laughs> yeah, and that mirrors a lot of things we've said. How did you feel about his foreign policy? I guess from the left or the right, I know he got like attacked a lot for his dealings with Iran. Did you generally feel like that was a, a fair agreement that was come to? Like, what are your overall thoughts on his foreign policy, especially as someone who was activated by like anti-war activism? You know, the, the reality is he transformed our military into this sort of uh, surgical, non-human, like we can now drone kill from miles away and, you know, nothing in terms of war and the way we approach war uh, really changed, in my opinion. We are still dropping bombs on black and brown people around the world, and he never graduated us out of an imperialist foreign policy, you know. I mean, we're, we're still looking at people, and Hillary Clinton was the same thing. We're still looking at co this Cold War mentality. We're still leaning on Henry Kissinger. Um, and unless we reduce the influence of the military-industrial complex, none of that is going to change. And that's one of the things that I really want to do in Congress is, especially with Rick Larson, who takes money from the defense industry and is never going to not vote for the military budgets and increased war machine. We've got to reduce our presence around the world, our military presence around the world. We've got to stop acting like we're the world police, that we're invaders. I think there is a place for United Nations-style peacekeeping where we are protecting groups of people who are being oppressed like the Kurds, like the Yazidis, like the Yemenis. I think too often we play both sides of the fence. We want to be protector, and yet we're selling weapons to the same people who are slaughtering the people that we're claiming to protect. So what it really comes down to is it's all this outdated notion of military strategic locations, and mostly so that we can protect natural resources. I firmly believe that the primary reason that we were in Afghanistan to begin with is that they have vast mineral resources yes. and oil, and we, want, and we wanted to control the pipelines that go down to um, the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Gulf. So it's a corporate imperialist mindset on foreign policy, and I am definitely running for Congress to break that mindset. So when you talk about butting heads with sort of moderate or centrist Dems, this isn't something that's purely hypothetical for you or like uh, or purely philosophical on, on like sort of a debate stage level. You've, you've kind of dealt with this on a more personal level with something involving a little old flag that we're all sick of, I think. Oh, my goodness. You guys are so good at your research. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I challenged the, the Democratic Party. You probably know then that I was suspended from my position on the state committee. Did, am I right about that? that yeah. yeah, that is correct. Yeah. Okay, yep. good. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm quite happy to talk about that. So that involves the flag thing that you're talking about here. We've got a presence here in Washington with groups like the Proud Boys and fascists in general. And I do consider myself anti-fascist. 
So back in March of 2019, I drive my daughter's a high school junior, and I was driving her to school uh, in the morning, and we passed a pickup truck that had a Confederate flag flying from the back of it. And I said, well, you know, what the heck is that all about? And so my daughter says, oh, I know that kid. He's a senior. He was in my math class last semester. And so I contacted the school principal and I said, did you, did you know you got, a, you got a student here who's driving around with a Confederate flag on the back of their pickup truck? I said, I, I think it would be a great thing if you called this student in, if you had a little talk with them about diversity. I can't imagine. This thing was, it was parked on the city street, but right in front of the neighboring elementary school. I said, I can't imagine what some people are thinking in their minds when they have to walk to school past this truck and have to deal with this symbol of genocide and slavery and hate. It would be great if you would talk to this kid about what that flag represents, what it means. And he also, the, he had a sticker on his truck that was uh, in, it, it was a sticker in the shape of the continental United States. And the words inside it were, fuck off, we're full. So this was definitely an anti-immigrant, racist gesture. And there's nobody who can fly the Confederate flag today and not think that they are going to be perceived as a racist or and white supremacist. But I did want to address it with the school administration. They basically said, if it's not parked on school property, we really can't do anything about it. But I gave them some resources that came from Black Lives Matter, uh, that came from Southern Poverty Law Center on how to, you know, me being a, a high school teacher of 18 years and knowing that these curriculums have been implemented successfully in other neighboring districts, I said, it would be great if you would consider doing something with our school district because we clearly have a problem with racism in this district. So I, I'm happy to say, just as an aside here, that they have implemented a similar program and the school principal did let me know that it was partly on my insistence that we do that, that they are doing this diversity training. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. But back to the Confederate flag, I told my daughter, I said, if that thing's here next week, I'm cutting it down. And sure enough, it was. And so I dropped her off at school, uh, went back to where the flag was parked, and I Facebook live streamed myself, taking out my box cutter, cut the flag down, cut it uh. into ribbons. <laughs> tossed it in the back of the pickup truck and said, I'm not going to have this symbol of hate on my city streets. I do want people to know that I would not go on to somebody's private property to do this. If mm -hmm. it was on school property, I would expect the school to handle it. But parked on a city street, I felt like, yes, it was an act of vandalism. I did it publicly because I'm not a coward. You know, people have said, well, you know, aren't, uh, isn't this self-aggrandizing for you to do this publicly? And I said, no, I actually want people to know that I'm willing to stand up for this, but that I will also take whatever consequences come my way if I get fined for vandalism or if I, you know, get charged with a misdemeanor and I've got a misdemeanor on my record for vandalism. I will happily take those charges in order to take a stand against the symbol of hate. Well, no charges ever came except from people within the Democratic Party. And so there is, as you guys probably know, there's a huge rift from 2016 between the Hillary people and the Bernie people. I really wish Hillary would go away. I can't believe that crap that she spewed on Howard, Howard Stern the other day. Oh, that was unbelievable. It was oh, absolutely God. unbelievable. And, and false, too. Just false. It was seriously just disgusting. I mean, for, for her to use the position she has to say things like that is just... It's, it's, it's absurd how much these people just want to mock all of us who aren't rich. Yep. Yeah, the poor's right. <laughs> 
Um, and it and it's it's frankly it's embarrassing. I mean, Hillary Clinton should just go take her millions. Obama should just go take their millions. You know, go enjoy the fifteen million dollar mansion he just bought in the Hamptons or Cape Cod or wherever it was, and just let us handle our business, please. But it was because of this rift coming out of the 2016 election where there has not been any coming together or healing. The right-wing Democrats who were in the party have always despised the Bernie people. They have not reached out to us to say, yes, this is your party. Also, they have wanted us to go away. And um, so one of them filed a complaint on me for cutting this flag down. They said, in my position as a state committee member, I'm representing the state party, that I was a bad representative of the state committee, that I was I violated um, their code of conduct about creating safe spaces, because there was another incident also prior to that. Now, I, I am the kind of guy where if anybody says there was an incident, they were like, was Jason involved? <laughs> um, so... Prior to the the flag cutting incident, there was another flag incident, and I don't I don't stand for the flag salute, and I don't stand for the national anthem. I have not stood for the Pledge of Allegiance since we invaded Iraq because I knew we invaded on false grounds. So that was my stand. And as, as a high school teacher, you know, my students would say, "Well, how come you're not standing for the flag?" And I said, "Well, I'll tell you why." But not only do I have reasons for not doing it. I have the right to not do it. There's a Supreme Court ruling from 1943 when we were actually fighting the Nazis, and that ruling says, well, if we compel people to, you know, salute the flag, that's a little bit too Nazi is what the prevailing opinion was. So, you know, I have the right to not stand for the flag, and I choose to not stand for it for a number of reasons. But during a local party meeting, I was sitting for the flag, and one of these right-wing Democrats who has not liked me from the start, turned around, turned his back to the flag while the pledge was being said, crossed his arms, and he stared me down. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just so juvenile. <laughs> it's so juvenile. It is yeah, absolutely it's, so it's juvenile. Incredible. It's incredible. So following the meeting, he was leaving the building. I kind of leaned over to him and I said, hey, hey, Michael, don't you know it's disrespectful to turn your back on the flag when the pledge is being said? Uh. And he he lit he lit into me. He said, "You're obnoxious. You're an asshole. Nobody likes you." And so we exchanged a couple of fuck yous. And I said, "Fuck off with your Nazi bullshit." Now I was accused of calling him a Nazi, and I said to them, "I was in the classroom for 18 years. You don't address the the child. You address the behavior." You know. So that was included in the incident of the code of conduct complaint where they they said. Basically, I am not a good representative of the Democratic Party because I got in this verbal altercation with some guy who was trying to oppress me, and I pushed back on it, and then cut the Confederate flag down. And I said, are you really going to go after me for cutting down a Confederate flag? I said, you know, more power to you. Go for it. You know, you guys are going to end up looking like idiots after this, <laughs> this. especially since in 2015, when Bree Newsom cut the flag down from the government building in South Carolina, our own state party chair here in Washington cheered her on and said, if she goes to jail for this, that she would contribute to her bail money. So there's a huge amount of hypocrisy going on here. I am one of the loudest progressive voices on the state committee and in the state and their goal was simply to shut me down. So we went through this investigative process that took four or five months. These Hillary-centrist right-wingers had accused me of 
bullying people. And it's, this is all online because none of this has ever happened in a party meeting. So, you know, they're talking about Facebook stuff and that they said they had 25 pages of screenshots of me bullying people online. And I said, let me see them. You know, can I, can I at least see what I'm being accused of? And they said, no. They said, we want to protect the privacy of the people who are accusing you. And I said, I already know who's accusing me. Let me see what they're saying about me. And, and they have refused to this day to show me anything that I have said or, or said online oh, that would warrant a violation of their code of conduct. But what they did do was they suspended me. So I got a six-month suspension <laughs> from the state committee for harassment, intimidation, and bullying, all from online stuff, and none of it substantiated at all. You know, that whole thing with the um, state party chair cheering on the South Carolina, it just speaks to the liberal obsession with activism from afar and with theoretically opposing change, but when it comes to... Per performative, just, it's all performative. Yeah, it's performative, right. and it's all on the ground, but... Uh, were you surprised by the kind of reaction that you had to the not standing for the flag and the incident with the, with the Confederate flag? Were you kind of surprised that less people kind of stood up for you? And was this sort of a, a, a political wake-up call? What it really did was it showed the progressives that we still don't have enough power within the Democratic Party. The executive committee of the party voted 17 to 4 to suspend me, and the people who did not vote to suspend me were people that I know here within my own county who know me, who know that the charges were completely false. And the people who voted to suspend me are these centrist right-wingers who essentially want to shut down progressive voices. So on the one hand, I was there, there wasn't a whole lot because the vote on it did come from the executive committee. Uh, and there just aren't enough progressives on the executive committee. I mean, that's really, and also part of this, to shut me down was I did challenge our state party chair for her seat back in January of this year. And so this kind of all came together as we have to shut this guy up. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what else to say about it other than, you know, the charges were false. I think it's an embarrassing thing for the state party that they can't take criticism. I'm a vocal critic of the state party from within. I do criticize the fact that we have a very progressive platform in Washington State, and I was part of the platform committee that wrote the progressive platform, and I criticize the party frequently for not having representation that is willing to stand up for that platform, but rather having representation that stands for a lot of the things that our platform says we stand against. For instance, taking corporate money. I wrote the resolution to have our, our elected officials reject corporate PAC money from the healthcare industry, healthcare and pharma and associated industries. Mm -hmm. Well, all of, them, all of them take that money. So I criticize the party for keeping, you know, I mean, the state party chair is already stumping for Rick Larson. I mean, she's going around the district sitting in, in meetings with Rick Larson. And she says, well, you know, he's not officially endorsed. And yet you're sitting with him, you know, talking for him. And he takes all of the money that our platform says we shouldn't be taking. So, again, it goes back to uh, being a performative party and not a party of action. And I have said for years and years and years that unless the Democratic Party becomes an activist party and is willing to actively make change, then 
they're going to continue to lose to Republicans. Even if they may get a seat back, it's going to swing back the other way because people are going to do exactly what they did in 2016. They're going to look at Obama's eight years and say, what did you do for me? You know, I'm still stuck paying outrageous health care costs. Maybe Trump does offer me something different, even if he's a freaking game show host. And that's where we lost. And if we get a Democrat back in office and the party does not do anything for the American people, I'm telling you, we're going to end up with somebody worse than Trump in 2024. That's one of my biggest fears. I think you have a great point on that. Yeah. Let's talk about like actually building that power because sometimes bad decisions come out and they're baked in based on who is in office. And you are campaigning for office. You're on Twitter. You're knocking doors. What is your strategy for fundraising and building human, you know, interest in getting you this seat? And is it easier or harder than like what traditional politicians are doing in terms of like calling donors and begging them for money? Well, the the reality is the people that I want to represent are broke. <laughs> wow. You know, wow. so what I am doing to reach out to people is, is and, and I think a lot of the progressive campaigns are taking the strategy, is if we can get people to donate five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, and have that be consistently recurring. I mean, it's really the model that Bernie has built. He built it on, on $27 a month. You know, I don't expect people necessarily to give me that much a month. But if I can get thousands of people who are willing to give me five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month, see, we're never going to raise that. You know, my incumbent opponent here, he raises and spends a million dollars even when he doesn't need to. You mentioned his Republican challenger back in 2016 was uh, Mark Henneman. And Mark really ran his campaign on a, on a completely shoestring budget. Rick Larson still raised and spent a million dollars. So he is deep in the pockets of industry, and we can't compete with that. And what he has got is name recognition. But if we can get ourselves a budget of, you know, forty to fifty thousand dollars a month, and again, that's you know, that's ten thousand people who are willing to give five bucks a month, we definitely have enough money to win this. And and what that money would go for is, you know, field staff just to organize volunteers so that we can go knock on doors. I've already been endorsed by the Progressive Caucus of the Washington State Democrats and my local county DSA. And so those are the people, our targets for volunteers and voters are students. We've got Western Washington University. We've got a number of community colleges. Washington State University has a campus here. My goal is to get those people active and out knocking doors, there's 440,000 registered voters here in, in Congressional District 2, and we've set a target of 185,000 doors to be knocked. It is a huge task, but if we can get the money to get a couple of field organizers paid for, unionized, by the way, we are already, uh, I'm not going to say we're unionized with IBEW, but we have a pre-unionization contract with them so that when we get the funding to hire staff, that, that staff will be unionized. And, you know, it's, it, it's really foot power, people power, knocking on doors and getting the lit printed that we will need. And the progressive me message resonates with people. I say, why did 46% of the American public stay home in 2016? Because neither of the candidates offered them anything. And our goal is to make sure that people know we have options. You know, I've always believed in good government. You know, there's a lot of people that say government is always corrupt. I mean, this is the thing that the Republicans like to say, you know, oh, government is terrible. We need small government. I don't believe that. I believe we need good government. You know, the size of government is not important. It's what is that government doing for people? Mm -hmm. 
and that is that is going to be the message and hopefully it will resonate with people you have a platform that's uh you know in theory at least really going to inspire working people and be more effective than like uh, ads that are everywhere for policies that nobody likes so uh how are people kind of reacting to your platform when you tell them about it uh one-to-one or like what are you offering people and how are they taking it well people like the platform people um the one thing that people are conditioned to respond to when you say Medicare for all and we believe that people should go to college tuition free and people should have their student loan debt canceled. We've done the system wrong. The the one thing that people say is, well, how are you going to pay for it? You can't just print money. And so I uh, ascribe to modern monetary theory and I do believe that you can just print money to handle this and to have people to talk to people in a way that they understand that when we invest instead of these elitist billionaires taking their money and just having it sit and earn interest in offshore tax havens or wherever where that money is not doing any good for anybody um, that if we are investing in infrastructure and we are investing in education that even if the government goes into the red the black is on the other side of that where people are building skills that the infrastructure is then being used to provide people with good with jobs and i don't think people really understand that kind of economy they're they're looking at an economy of if somebody wins somebody else loses and that doesn't have to be the case also, people have been really conditioned into this modern kind of economic model that revolves around shareholders and being like constantly financially accountable. Whereas in the past, it was considered more acceptable for corporations and governments to just operate in the red for long periods of time while they figured shit out and to, to invest in things. And, and that's what you're talking about right now. And this is really critical is investing in this country. We need to invest in this country and it might be expensive up front but you know i you can't look at some of this stuff and say oh it's not going to pay off exactly exactly and if you go back to the history of corporations i've done a lot of uh, they, you know tom hartman has has schooled me on the history of, of corporations but when corporate charters used to be issued back in the 1800s they were only issued for limited amounts of time and corporations had to reapply for those charters and they had to show that their existence alone was a public benefit. And I don't think, I mean, we can look at any number of corporations say, today and say, okay, yeah, you're providing jobs, but what are the downsides to something like Walmart, where you're not paying your workers enough of a wage so that then they have to turn to the government and get assistance from the government because you, while you're hoarding your billions with the Walton family, people are starving and they're not able to afford health care. That right there, the balance is not in the public interest. And so I think we really need to start looking at corporate charters and revoking some of them. I've also said this recently about the uh, FCC, that the airwaves are public airwaves, you know, and, and I don't want to necessarily regulate freedom of speech, but I think when we've got media organizations that are owned by the military industrial complex and all sorts of other industries that you have, we, we know, and there's so much evidence and even 
the reporters themselves will say, yeah, we're, we're told to kill this story or kill that story. You've got media organizations that are also not working in the public interest. And I think we need to look at revoking some FCC licenses. We have a corporate stranglehold on our society that we, we have to do away with. And that's really Citizens United speaks to that. Mm-hmm. We've got to do something about the way our economy serves the haves and continues to increase the influence and power of the already haves and leaves everybody else really scraping for leftovers. Right. So the um, the question of stranglehold is uh, it's a really important one that we have to consider in how corporations are monopolizing pretty much everything. And it also applies not just to the news, but to the environment where... Uh, mm-hmm the stakes are a lot higher and it's the future of the planet that corporations are monopolizing and disregarding so how can we how can we inspire people to think differently about that and what's our way or what's your way to move forward on breaking the corporate monopoly on um, our future to make it not terrible <laughs> Well, I mean, just like I said about um, the media conglomerates, uh, I think the media conglomerates avoid a lot of these critical issues. It's stunning to me that people think that climate change is either not real or not caused by man. I think really what we have to do is we have to go on, and this is what I love about what Bernie does, we have to go on a mass education spree of letting the general public know here are the real issues that if we don't cut carbon emissions by one half in the next 10 years and down to zero in the next 40 years, in entire countries are going to be underwater. I have a friend down in the Florida Keys who just showed a video of what's happening down in the Florida Keys. In the Florida Keys, the water levels are starting to rise down there that the Keys are going to be gone soon. That if we get past this now, I don't know what the what the baseline is, but I think we've got about another degree or degree and a half Celsius to go in terms of global temperature rise to where our weather patterns will change irreversibly. This is that 10-year window that the United Nations has said, but we don't have 10 years to figure out what to do. We have 10 years to figure out, build the infrastructure, and get it all implemented to bring those carbon levels down to a net zero. Yeah, well, not net zero, but in 10 years, but down by 50% in 10 years. But that means all the infrastructure is going to need to be built within the next five years. And because we're not being hugely impacted by the weather here yet, I don't think people are taking that timeline seriously at all. And I think we really have to do some kind of, and I hope Bernie does this when he gets elected because I'm confident that he will. I hope Bernie really uses his bully pulpit for education of the American public about that timeline. And he said he's going to be an organizer in chief and things like that. Yep. And, and that's, that's what needs to happen. So he is going to get resistance from people like Rick Larson, who I'm running against, but he will be supported by me. So if Bernie has a plan to educate the public and use his organizing powers, I'm going to take that on a small scale, and I'm going to do the same thing here in Washington State and in the 2nd Congressional District. I think that's what has to happen. Well, we talked about raising money, and we're going to have your website in the show notes. You can also shout it out in a second. Um, But what do people need to know in general to support your run for Congress? Give me money. (laughs) I got to have some money. (laughs) Fundraising. Yeah. 
fundraising for progressive campaigns is it's just a struggle. But I really want to make sure people understand that you don't have to give a lot of money, but I need a lot of you to give a little money. That's grassroots. That's how Bernie did it. That's how all of us running the dozens and dozens of fantastic progressive democratic socialist candidates who are running uh, nationwide, that's how we're all doing it. We're reaching out to people and saying, can you give us five bucks a month? So if I can get 10,000 people to give me five bucks a month, we are fully funded and we will have all the money that we need to do what we need to do. Well, I think that's a pretty reasonable target, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. I think so, too. 440,000 people in the district, you know? Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people right now that, you know, I mean, I'm one of them. Uh, I'm pretty interested in, you know, giving to candidates that don't live in my district necessarily, but can still be better than the ones that are there. And I think a lot of our audience feels that way for sure. I I hope so. Yeah. So hopefully uh, all of you out there listening are going to be telling your friends to get on Jason Call's website, jump on Twitter, follow this guy. If you haven't already been convinced at the end of this episode, I don't know what's wrong with you. Um, this, this was a lot of fun. And also, we talked a lot about a lot of really important issues. And uh, I think that you were able to articulate a lot of things in like a very coherent and sensible manner that are very important. So hopefully everybody who's listening feels the same. I'm pretty sure they will. I appreciate that. Next time you're watching C-SPAN or watching NBC and listening to one of these like 98-year-old goons like throw snowballs in the air. I want you to imagine like Jason being in that room and being able to clap back on these people because it's definitely worth more than $5. <laughs> that is worth a few bucks a month. Easily. Easily. And, and, and when I, when I think of myself in that position, you know, I really think of, you guys remember Alan Grayson in Florida, Alan, Alan Grayson was a big inspiration for me. And now I know he was a millionaire funded a lot of his own campaign, but he also was on the floor of Congress as a, an extremely progressive guy calling these guys out on their bullshit on a daily basis. He was a huge inspiration for me to, you know, along the line say I needed to get involved with something like this. And I think the squad is fantastic. I am so inspired by um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I think she handles herself absolutely beautifully in front of corporate executives, in front of Republicans, and in front of these establishment Democrats who are just blowing smoke. Yeah, and I mean, like, given all of the, the bad things that happen openly in D.C., it's good to have somebody that you know will not just stand there with their hands in their pockets and will put themselves, like, at risk to do something about what's going on. And I think you fit the bill for that, man. Thank you very much. And I will say, I think what's great about the squad is that they gave people the confidence that we could put someone like you into office and that you're going to do what yeah. you say. Because I think for a long yeah. time, so many people were so disillusioned, but now we're seeing the results. And, and you definitely, in my book, should be in the ranks of those people yelling at these idiots because we definitely need more yeah. people like you doing it. Yeah. The, the squad, <laughs> the squad is Thank three you. or four people now, but who knows, after 2020, we'll have uh, a bona fide company. caucus. There are so many good candidates running nationwide, and I hope that your listeners will see fit to fund uh, me and a number of the others. And I, you know, we've got a way to go here before the election, and I really believe that we can change the face of Congress. But not only that we can, but that we must 
change the face of Congress because Bernie can't do this alone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Jason Call, very nice talking to you. Hopefully sometime Thank between you. now and like the end of next year, we have you back on to talk about how it's going yes. and nailing things down. You know, don't be a stranger. We love to hear from you. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, real quick, shout out your Twitter and your website. Everything is call for Congress. It's F-O-R, not the number four. Call, just like phone call. That's my last name. Call for Congress at Twitter, Facebook, and my website, callforcongress.com. And if you want to do callforcongress.com slash donate, you'll find my donate <laughs> um, uh, options there. And of course, we will have all of those links in the show notes, as always. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Here's somebody that knows how to promote. So not safe for wonks. Jason Call. Uh, we have been. This is, yeah, we have been faithfully not safe for wonks. Brandon Buchanan. I'm Kennedy Cooper. Leia Rose. Thank you so much for listening as always. Absolutely. You guys have a great time. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See ya.